You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. In Genesis 45, uh, I'm gonna cover 45 and 46 today. And, and really, there's a theme that, that carries from 45 through the end of the book in chapter 50, and that's the theme of family. And it's fitting because we're focusing on groups today and encouraging you to prayerfully consider joining a group if you're not already in a small group. And well, kind of one of the things, one of the sayings we've coined at our church is group is where church becomes family. And uh, speaking of family, there are three things that make families, by my estimation. Number one, having babies. That's, that's a way to make family, just have babies. Um, the second thing that makes family is the blood of our Savior Jesus Christ. Through his death and resurrection, we are made a spiritual family. Um, and the third thing that makes family is underground street racing, as taught to us by the film franchise Fast and Furious. Um, so I'm going to sound like Dom Toretto for the next three Sundays as we focus on family and, and really how the end of Genesis focuses on uh, Jacob's sons who are biological family, but it's, it, it's got a deeper theological significance. It's the founding of God's eternal covenant family. And, and, and it really sets the stage, the last five or six chapters set the stage for the Exodus um, and return back to the promised land where God is going to expand even greater with his covenant people. I want to show you three things about family today. Number one, family loves each other. Um, now, I realize this isn't always the case. Some, sometimes you have family, uh, biological family, who've been very abusive or harmful to you. Um, but I want to show you, ideally, how we're supposed to love one another, and not just our biological families, but also our spiritual families. Secondly, that family cares for each other, that um, at our church, we want to care for one another practically, provide for one another, uh, be there for each other in a real way. And thirdly, um, a theological understanding that family is created by God, that God sovereignly orchestrates uh, who we find ourselves in community with, okay? Let's look at the first one. Family loves each other. Joseph is a great example of love because Joseph has been mistreated and abused and neglected. Um, his brothers sold him into slavery as a teenager, and he is sold to Egypt. And through God's circumstances, he rises to power in Egypt to the point that he's second in command. A famine comes upon the earth, and all nations come to Egypt to buy food. His brothers sovereignly end up back in his presence, buying food from him. They don't realize it's him. And the past three chapters, he has concealed his identity from his brothers. Uh, he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And so he has concealed his identity and he has made sure that they bring his youngest brother, Benjamin, uh, back as well. And so all 11 brothers are there. And the end of chapter 44 ends with this confrontation between Judah and Joseph. And what's happened is Benjamin has been wrongfully accused of a crime. He is facing enslavement in Egypt and Judah steps up and he says, take me as a slave instead of my little brother. And this is, um, this is a big turning point for Joseph's family. What it signifies is the turning from dysfunction and hatefulness to love and forgiveness. And, and so Judah's act of being willing to be a substitute foreshadows Christ being our substitute on the cross, uh, where he would die for our sins and raise from the dead and redeem us into his covenant family. And this overcomes Joseph. 
When he's able to see this happen, he is no longer able to conceal his identity and continue to hide who he really is from his brothers. And so he reveals his identity and who he really is in chapter 45, verse one. And we see his expressions of love and how he reacts to his brothers. It says, then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. Again, after what was probably months of concealing his identity, emotionally he is overcome and he's unable to hide his identity anymore. And as he tells his brothers this, they are, it says they're dismayed, they're in shock. I think they're probably also gripped by fear. What is Joseph going to do to them? Uh, what's going to happen? Is he going to kill them? Is he going to torture them? Is he going to enslave them in Egypt? Well, as an act of love, what Joseph does is none of those things. He forgives them. Verse four continues, Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And when they came near, uh, and they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors." Joseph makes it clear that he still has an unconditional love and care for his family, his brothers. That what this teaches us as the people of God is that our arms should always be open to uh, those who have sinned, even against us personally. We should be open for genuine restoration. Um, I, I think, I think I've, I've seen churches uh, hurt people so much, and, and a lot of it comes from a posture of being unwilling to forgive wrongs that are done. You know, God alone knows someone's heart and whether they're truly repentant or regenerate or not. Um, but the reality is, is that regenerate and unregenerate people both do deplorable things, carry out despicable sins. But, but our call as Christians is to always remain loving and ready to forgive anyone who is truly repentant. Uh, Paul writes a couple of letters in your New Testament Bible to the church at Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians, that's the one that comes first, he, uh, he says that he, he, he deals with a man who has a very public sin. He's uh, having sexual relations with his father's wife and he tells the church that they should enact church discipline, basically remove that man from membership. And he, he actually scolds the church for not doing that sooner. Church discipline isn't a really popular thing, but it's a biblical thing. He tells the church they needed to remove that man. But then by the time you get to 2 Corinthians, that's the second letter, by the way, you get to 2 Corinthians, he scolds the church again because they haven't received the man back. Apparently the man was repentant and he was sorrowful and the church wouldn't welcome him back with loving forgiveness. 2 Corinthians 2, 7, Paul writes, you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. This example, I think, is what's in mind in Joseph's uh, situation where he wants to avoid this excessive sorrow of his brothers. What he says to them is he says, um, do not be angry at yourselves. He says, do not be distressed. That word distressed means saddened. He, he, he actually believes that God has so sovereignly planned what's happened that they should not even be sad of all the injustice that happened to Joseph at their hands. 
It's an amazing act of forgiveness. And so as the church, we ought to seek to be this for others, that we forgive and comfort those who have committed sins, even sins against us personally, and welcome them as brothers and sisters in Christ because our Savior Jesus forgives. That's the message we carry as the church, that Jesus died to pay for sins and there is no sin that you could commit against me that, that can't be covered by the blood of Jesus. And so Joseph is a, is a supreme example for us in this uh, effort of love. In chapter 45, verse 13, he instructs his brothers. He says, you must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and all that you've seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. So Joseph hugs and kissed Benjamin the longest. He has a really deep and close connection with Benjamin. But he, he also hugs and kisses the very men that sold him into slavery, that, that had murderous hearts against him. It's a beautiful picture of reconciliation and unconditional love for God's family. But I think what I love the most about this is the end of verse 15. It says his brothers talked with him. It's just a short little sentence at the end of that verse, and it just says that they talked. And we don't, we're not given detail, but the reason I love it is because it gives evidence that they didn't just immediately like give a big you know, dab it up and then just go home. They, they, they hung around for a while. Maybe they built a campfire and sat around. They didn't immediately leave. It seems that they sat down to catch up with one another. Now that conversation, we're not given the details of. I'm sure there were some awkward parts like, hey, brothers, what'd you do with all that silver you got for selling me? And they're like, well, Judah bought a lot of prostitutes. Um, one of them was his daughter-in-law. It was a long story. You know, there was a lot they had to catch up on, right? Um, so maybe that's why some of the details are left out. But but I love the picture of just them being together without animosity. You know, this is the only time up until this point that we see these 12 brothers living and, and existing together in the same place without jealousy, without hatred, without strife toward one another. That's what love and forgiveness brings about. And so what, what, what we want to emulate in our churches is, is that we want to be the family of God striving to live in this way. And that's why I love group. Group is a great example of sometimes group is just talking together, just doing what the end of verse 15 says. We're just spending time together because in that togetherness, we're able to get to know one another and love one another. My favorite um, analogy for the church in the Bible is family. The Bible is described as family throughout the scriptures. God calls himself what? A father. He calls us what? Sons and daughters. Relationally to one another, he calls us brothers and sisters. He calls the church a household. There's familial language all throughout the Bible to describe what we call church. But man, sometimes I think Olive Garden does it better than us. They say, when you're here, you're family. You get unlimited salad and breadsticks at Ollie G's, and they come and they, they got that cheese grater, and you just you can let them go all day with that thing, right? And... But, but, but here's what I would desire for our church, that we wouldn't stop where Ollie G's stops. They say, when you're here, you're family. You see, the difference in our spiritual family, it's not just when we're here. It's not just when we come on Sundays for our hour service, which is important, by the way, which is biblical, by the way. It is good that we come and listen to the preaching of God's word and observe the ordinances of the church and worship together. Those are all good and important, but there's not a lot of time for us to catch up in that hour. 
That it's not just when we're here that we're family, it's when we go, we're still family. And that's why it's so important for us to be intentional with this. So family loves one another, but also family cares for each other. Secondly, we see that Joseph doesn't just forgive and love and then send them on their way. He practically provides and cares for them. And so this is what I mean when it's not just that we love each other when we're in one another's presence, that we actually look for opportunity to do good and provide and care for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Look, at, uh, look back with me at verses 9 through 11 of chapter 45. He, tell, he tells him, he says, Hurry up and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you. And there are yet five years of the famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. Joseph instructs them to go back home to get his father, Jacob, to get their wives, to get their children, to get their livestock, all their possessions, and come and settle permanently in the land of Goshen. Now, Goshen is located just north of Giza where the the great pyramids are. This is where Joseph is, and so he's saying, I've got a spot for y'all that I can reserve and make sure that you're taken care of. He puts them in Goshen, which was low and fertile land, not was, is even to this day, low and fertile land. He puts them out on this beautiful countryside outside of the city, but close enough for him to actually provide and care for them. He even tells of the needs of provision to Pharaoh, which to me feels like a risky move, right? Like what if Pharaoh doesn't want to provide uh, for his family? What if Pharaoh wants to overtax his family? Uh, There are a lot of things that could have gone wrong, but again, God is working sovereignly, even through someone like Pharaoh who doesn't worship the true God. In chapter 45, verse 20, Pharaoh himself tells Joseph, have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Pharaoh goes so far as to say, you bring your family down here and and the whole nation of Egypt will, will ensure that your family's taken care of. God sovereignly provided for the brothers and their families. And what I love about this is that it shows us that we as Christians get to be on the front line of providing God's care to his people. Like, why, why in the world would we want to miss out on that? Why in the world would we want to be stingy with our money and our resources and our time when we can invest in other people and be the instrument used by God to comfort his people and bring people into the family? What an awesome opportunity that is that God provides for his people through his people. He could do it in any way that he wanted, but he's chosen to use messed up people like you to take grace to sinners. Galatians 6.10 says, So then as, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So we do good to everyone. We care for everyone. But there's a promise on the church that especially those who are of the household of faith that are part of the church, we do good unto them. We care and provide for them. The household, I love that Paul uses the word household here. It's a familial word, right? The the idea is that if you're in the household of faith, you're part of the family of the church. The the Basham household has seven people that live in it and a a host of animals that I've lost count of and don't, don't care to count up normally. But But the Basham household has a lot of chaos and turmoil all the time, 
But, but we strive to all pull our weight, right? We've all got our own chores. We've all got our own interests and hobbies. We seek to support one another in those. And you don't get to be on the sidelines when you live in that house. That's just the way it is. And so why in the world would we think it's any different when we come to church, that we could come and be on the sideline? Now, now, practically speaking, there are always gonna be people on the sideline, but the church should always be beckoning them, hey, why don't you come along and participate in what God is doing in our family? So as the church, as God's family is called to care for one another, we do that not to the exclusion of others, but with the invitation to others. So we help other people all the time, outside of the church, all the time. We're doing a community Thanksgiving dinner next week. All the time we want to seek to be doing things like that, but our aim with that is not just to fill their bellies, it's to invite everyone in and say, there is room for you at this spiritual table called the church, the household of faith. We want you not just to get a meal, not just to to have a good event, we want you to be a part of something eternal. And this is what Joseph is giving us a peek at when he cares for his covenant family. Now, notice it's not to the exclusion of others. Joseph isn't opposed to helping Egyptians or even other nations. He's doing that next week. Um, As we look at our text next week, we'll actually see an example of him helping other nations and other families. But in verse 24, he says, says, then he sent his brothers away. And as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. We read this in uh, our staff meeting this week. And when we read that verse, Leslie spoke up and she said, that's what I tell my boys when we get ready to go on a car trip. Um, do not quarrel on the way. Um, and, and if you've been in one of those car rides, if you've got multiple kids and they like fist fight in the back seat, you know, you know what I'm talking about. You just turn the radio up a little bit louder. You just try to ignore what's happening back there, right? I, I always wish I had like, you know, the limousines have like the, the glass that goes up and just divide. So my wife and I just spend time together. Y'all could die back there, but I just want to focus ahead. Um, but, but he says, do not quarrel on the way because he knows that as soon as they get out of his presence, we're like, man, you were the one that wanted to sell him into slavery. No, it was you. And they were going to you know, argue about that. And, and so what this shows is sometimes loving care in a family also means correction. And listen, we live in a society that doesn't like that. Amen? People don't like that. Maybe, maybe they've never liked that, but I think, I think we see it more predominantly with social media and, and how accessible we can see the whole world. Man, we live at a time where if someone tells you you're wrong about something, it's called abuse, it's called spiritual abuse, it's called church hurt. And sometimes it's the most loving thing we can do. They say, you're in sin, and you need someone to bring that to your attention. James five nineteen says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do for someone is tell them they're wrong. That's not popular today. Like, this is being live streamed right now. Somebody's probably already canceled me at this point. But the reality is, that's, that's biblical. And so, those of you that are members of this church, as you gather week after week with us, you need to know that if you try to wander off into some mess, try to wander off in some heresy, you try to deny the faith, you try to leave your spouse, you try to abandon your family, you try to do some of that mess, we love you enough to say, stop it. You're not gonna do that. And those of you who are not yet part of the church, listen, we're inviting you and beckoning you into that. And you say, why would I want that? Because you need that. Because you're a wretched sinner just like I am. We all need that accountability in our lives. 
That's what, that's what family does for one another. Thirdly and finally, family is created by God. The reason we beckon you into church family is because God has decreed it. We didn't make this up. This is in scripture. This is how God has told us to operate with elders and deacons, with, with congregations, with baptism and communion. All these things are outlined in scripture of how we do things. Physical family and faith family, both are ordained by God. We don't control the families that we're born into. And similarly, we, we don't become Christians because of our superior decisions. We're saved by Jesus. He saves us, not ourselves. And God's sovereign power is seen for his people in his preservation of the covenant family in this story. Look back again with me at verses seven and eight in chapter 45. It says, and God sent before you, sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant, remember that word, a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Joseph here shows incredible maturity as he speaks to his brothers and he says, the wrongdoing that you committed. He doesn't negate that. He doesn't say it's okay, right? He doesn't condone it. But he says that God was working through that to accomplish a better end. And he says, it's not them that sent him. It was God's sovereign plan. And he says, God had made him a father to Pharaoh. Again, he's using familial language, but the Hebrew word basically means advisor or counselor to Pharaoh. And he says that what God was doing in all of that was preserving a remnant. Now, the word remnant means what remains or what's left over. Now, the idea is that while all humanity chases their own sin, their own pleasure, their own plan, God's people are held back by his sovereign hand. They're held back to something higher morally, something better lawfully, something, something greater in grace. That, that all of us are in this covenant community of being held back for something greater than what the world is chasing after. And so the 11 brothers returned to Canaan to go get Jacob and to go get their families. And Joseph sends with them, like pulls out all the stops, like the full parade entourage. He's got like the Egyptian fire trucks rolling up. You know, it's, it's big time. So pick up with me in verse 25, 45-25. So, so they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive. He's ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. And when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. And so these wagons that, that Jacob's able to look at it's essentially like Egyptian U-Haul. You know, he sent all these wagons up so they could load them with people and livestock and all their possessions. And he also sent provisions and treasury um, to, to, to kind of serve as proof, uh, to convince them, to authenticate the message that the brothers were bringing back. And I, and I want to dial in and laser focus on verses 26 and 27 because there's an interesting pal parallel that happens in the description of Jacob's faith. Verse 26, it says that Jacob's heart became numb. Um, I, I recently went and got a tattoo on my knee 
That's a bad idea if any of you are thinking about it. But Phil Beatty uh, wanted to get a matching tattoo with me. He was like, let's go get tattoos on our knees. And I was like, okay, bet. And he didn't think I was actually going to do it. And then all of a sudden, there we are at the tattoo parlor in the chair getting ready to get knee tattoos that match like we're kids or something. And, um, and that guy starts tattooing my knee. It is, it's got to be, I've got a lot of tattoos. That's got to be the worst spot to get a tattoo. And when that needle went in my knee, the first thing I thought was, I don't even like Phil this much. Why am I doing this? Like, this hurts, you know? And so the, the artist is sitting there watching me like squirm in the chair and stuff. And he, and he asked me, he's like, do you want some numbing spray? And I didn't even know that was an option, first of all. And I was like, why would you even ask? It should just be assumed. Yes, I want the numbing spray. And he, he put that stuff on me. And it was like the, the mist of the morning in the Garden of Eden, man. It was like, it took 10 minutes for it to settle in. He started tattooing me again. I couldn't feel a thing. It was amazing, right? And, and, but, but what happened was, is like, I started thinking about the numbness of the hearts of non-believers and how we, like, as Christians, when we do something wrong, it's designed to hurt, right? You feel that? That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But if you're not a believer, you don't hurt when you hurt other people. You don't care. You don't, you don't feel anything because you have built up a calloused and the Bible describes your heart as stone. It's numb. And that's the same language that's used in Hebrew to describe Jacob's heart. Now he was in, in the Lord. He trusted in the coming Messiah. He was in covenant. But, but somehow he had let his heart just become hardened and numb from his hard life of, of just long disobedience and wrong that had been done to him. And when he heard good news, he was unable to feel. This is a picture of you. If you're not in Christ, you're not convicted by sin. You don't feel your wrong. You don't care about your wrong. And you might try to act like you do. And you might be morally and, and socially upstanding. But the, you know what the Bible describes you as? A spiritual zombie. Dead in your trespasses and sins. But salvation, the good news of Jesus, brings our hearts to life. When we're convinced that Jesus died on a cross and rose from the dead, it brings our spirit to life. Verse 27 says that when he was convinced that his son was actually alive, when he saw the authenticating nature of the wagons and the Egyptian treasury, that his spirit revived. In Hebrew, it means it was restored to perfect health. That his heart, once broken, was now healed. It wasn't the excitement of seeing the Egyptian treasure. It was that his heart was convinced that it was true. He knew it to be true. Actually, the translation that would have been around in Jesus' day, it's called the Greek Septuagint, uses the Greek word pistuo, which is the most common word to describe your salvation in Christ. Your belief means that you know it to be true and you put your whole trust and you rest in it. You put your weight into it. You see, Jacob is so convinced that he's willing to pick up and move to Egypt because he believes it. And so what I want to ask you this morning is, do you believe in Jesus? Are you numb to your sin? Or do you feel your sin because you are convinced that Jesus really rose from the dead? That he really died to pay for that sin you just committed? And when you know that to be true, it hurts when you hurt others. The beginning of chapter 46, evidencing this, this change actually uses... Jacob's covenant name, Israel. Verse one says, Israel took his journey with all that he had and he came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices 
to the God of his father, Isaac. And listen, I'm running out of time, but we need to talk about Beersheba for a little bit, okay? I know that's the last thing y'all wanna do is talk about Beersheba, but don't lose me. Hang in there. Let's talk about Beersheba. Jacob goes to Beersheba not to meet his needs. His needs are gonna be met in Egypt, not Beersheba. But he goes to Beersheba because worshiping his God is more important than meeting his needs. And this is something all of us need to learn. We need to understand that our most supreme need is to worship our creator. You might have all your basic needs met. You might have food and shelter, plenty of money in the bank, all those things. But I promise you, you will find yourself lacking if you're not in a right relationship with your God. And so he goes to Beersheba. And the significance of going to Beersheba was it was special to him because of what happened with his dad there. Jacob's dad is Isaac. Isaac had a personal interaction with God in Beersheba. He had built an altar there. Let me rewind, if I may, to Genesis 26. It says, from there, he, this is Isaac, Isaac went up to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. This was the settling place for Isaac. Isaac built a place to worship here. He pitched a tent here. He remained here. He settled his family down here. And at the time of Genesis 26, Isaac is an old man, but he's establishing a place for permanent living for the first time. Jacob, throughout his childhood, had just moved around, had sojourned in the land of Canaan. But in a sense, going back to Beersheba would have been the closest thing Jacob knew to going back to his hometown. And he goes back, to worship God. Maybe the altar is still there, but what's significant about growing up in Beersheba was why they were there in the first place. The context of it is given at the beginning of Genesis 26, which says, now there was a famine in the land. Does that sound familiar? He had seen his dad go through the same thing that he was now facing, his family starving and not having enough. The verse continues, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. Does that sound familiar? that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all faced this same predicament. Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, and listen what happens. And the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. When famine hit for Isaac, Jacob's dad, God showed up, appeared to him, and said, do not, under any circumstances, go to Egypt. And here Jacob's looking at his circumstances, he's thinking, probably a pretty good idea for us to go to Egypt. My son's there. There's land there. There's provisions there. But he goes to the Lord first. He doesn't just do what he thinks is best. He goes to God first. And in chapter 46, verse 2, God spoke to Israel and in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father, Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. He tells him, don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. Isaac most likely had bragged about the fact that everyone left during the famine and went to other places, and he, in faith, stayed exactly where God told him to stay. But he didn't tell Jacob to stay. He told Jacob to go. Your calling and what God wants for you ain't the same as everybody else. Our gospel's the same. Our mission is the same. But the specifics of how that's played out from life to life, from soul to soul, is going to be unique for all of us. There is wisdom and counsel, but we're not all called to the same thing. 
And look at the reason that God gives him. I told your dad to stay put. I'm telling you to go. And in verse four, it says, I myself, this is the Lord speaking. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. What a word of comfort to old man Jacob that his son who he thought was long dead would be with him as he died. And God makes it clear that he is going to be present with him in Egypt. Listen, there's an expression my wife and I say to each other, I'll talk to you at 10. And the reason we say that is because 10 o'clock is the first time we actually get to have conversations sometimes. It's like I can be in an intimate conversation looking deep into my wife's eyes. She's right in front of me and there's just a kid that pops up in between us. Like, just, they're always there. They just can't get away from them. I'll talk to you at 10. And it's, it's similar for the child of God, that we're never alone. And God is reassuring Jacob here. You're not going to be alone if you leave this land. That God is going to be with him. Listen to me. There is never a time when a child of God is alone. You're not going to go through something that's too severe, too scary, too big for your God. And the bulk of Genesis 46 gives us a record of how how the family actually succeeds and and goes and dwells in the land of Goshen. It gives us genealogy so that there's a record of all the people that come into Egypt. And the numbers are tallied. In verse 26, it says, All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons. Wives were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. 70 is God's perfect fulfillment. It's a representation of God's fullness. In Genesis chapter 10, earlier in this same book, we're given 70 nations as God um, populates the earth. And here in Genesis 46, there are 70 people in God's covenant family that come into Egypt. God still honors his promise. We see in Deuteronomy 10, 22. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. Conservative numbers populate that there were at least 30,000 Hebrews at the time of the Exodus, while some would argue for maybe over 2 million people at that time. Either way, they truly do become a nation. They truly do become a multitude. God is clearly with them as he blesses and takes care of them. And two men in particular understand and know that God has worked through them to accomplish that, Jacob and his son Joseph. Verse 29, near the end of 46, says, Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face and know that you're still alive. You have this beautiful reunion that takes place between father and son. And and I think the reason it's so beautiful is because they know that God is fulfilling his promises. Even at times where it felt like God wouldn't come through, that, that times where it didn't look like it was gonna happen, God fulfilled his promises. And Jacob goes to his grave and Joseph goes to his grave and they go to their graves knowing that God is still fulfilling his promises. Let me leave you with this. I promise you that God's promises will be fulfilled. That we can stand on them. When, when he says that if you trust in him, that he will save you eternally, he will sanctify you, he will make you holy, he will give you eternal life. All the spiritual treasures of heaven are yours. Those promises are guarantees. Why would you not want to be in that family? Why would, you, why would you continue to ignore that familial blessing that God has so freely put in front of you? 
And so my call to you as we conclude is just don't, don't miss that. Don't brush that off. Don't view that as unimportant or a small part of your life. It should be the cornerstone of your life. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.